Welcome to Progressive News Network. Okay. Had to have a little mood music there. Welcome to this episode, this segment of Progressive News Network with Brooke Hines and Janine Moloff. I'm your host this evening, Janine Moloff. I'm filling in for Brooke. She's just not feeling too well today. So I want to send all those good wishes to her because we couldn't do this without her. So since I'm hosting this tonight, I kind of picked something that I felt was really, really important. And the the mood music, shall we say, you know, with people, that, that was a recording of a real protest with real citizens, you know, basically letting it all out. And it seemed appropriate given the topic of tonight's uh, show, which is the eviction moratorium. Uh, and if you look at our, our advert, it says, you know, eviction moratorium and COVID crazy. So we've got our big story tonight. And then we're set aside up, yeah, maybe 15 minutes for our smaller story. So, you know, this week, I'll tell you, I, I'm not from Florida. I'm here in Missouri in St. Louis. And I am so, I'm just going to say something you probably shouldn't say on radio. I am so goddamn proud of my first district uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, I stand with Cori Ferguson Strong. And for those of you who have a misunderstanding regarding Ferguson, I was down there. I was down there practically every day. And I witnessed the police attacking reporters, the police attacking people like me who were not burning things down. But the mainstream media focused on basically the obvious you know, the, the few criminals that were in our midst that took advantage, but they were not the activists. In fact, nobody really knew who they, who they were. And Corey was there, too, to help out. And she is a true a treasure. Okay, so let's get on with this. So we know that the eviction moratorium has expired without even a gasp of concern from Obviously not from the Republicans, okay? The GOP is just too cruel and greedy. So we knew we weren't going to get support from them. But also from corporate or centrist blue dog Democrats who basically were more concerned about going on their early vacations and whether or not millions of Americans would be evicted out in the streets as the Delta variant is surging through our society and killing people, including children. So now we have Missouri Progressive Congresswoman Cori Bush, and she's been leading a protest outside the Capitol, sleeping on the steps, or what you call sleeping rough, if you will, with squad colleagues Ayanna Presley and Elon Omar. There were all other additional activists, concerned activists, were there as well. Now, why is Cori doing this? Well, first of all, Cori uh, wrote and published an, an op-ed that ran in time where she explained how when she was younger and she had two young babies, she was homeless at times, sleeping in her car, and trying to put herself through school and working at the same time. So she's lived this. All right, this, this is not anything fake. This is real. Um, and so Corey is leading this protest. Uh, she's demanding that the House reconvene immediately. And this was as of Thursday night, actually in order to extend the eviction moratorium, which has since expired. <clears throat> She's been joined uh, in the last 24 hours by Senator Elizabeth Warren, as well as uh, Representative Jim McGovern, uh, 
Uh, and McGovern is the chair for the House Rules Committee, and he's the guy that can, re, you know, that can set up this hearing, all right? He clearly stated he's willing to reconvene immediately, but we need the speaker. So where is Speaker Pelosi? Where's the, the majority uh, leader in the House, uh, Steny Hoyer? Where's Jim Clyburn? According to press reports, they just can't be inconvenienced, but they've called this expiration of the eviction moratorium unfortunate. Well, I'm glad they acknowledged that. Um, this story is going to include some details about which corporate forces are behind this willingness of centrist Dems to let the clock out. And guess what? It has to do with big corporate landlords who obviously are going to be connected to big banks. And basically, it's about big corporate donors because these blue dogs, you know, they take money from the same corporate interests a lot of times as the Republicans. And they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. I mean, let's face facts. Until we end this system of legalized bribery, we're never going to get anything done. And, and no matter what, and this is truly a crisis. You know, I remember as a child when Richard Nixon was president, he was vile, but I don't even believe he would have allowed this to occur. This is what's happening. And so the fact is this story is going to talk about, you know, the fact that centrist Dems who could have stopped this let the clock run out. Now, it's true that in the House of Representatives, right now the Democrats have a majority, but in order to pass something Without having any Republican votes, they need, they only have three, they only have a lead of three uh, representatives. So all it takes is three centrist Dems to say, no, we're not going to do it, and it doesn't happen. So that's our big story. Our smaller story is going to deal with what I now call the COVID files. And I'm going to outline just briefly some of the criminally negligent and dangerous actions coming from various state level, in this instance, attorney generals. Uh, specifically my attorney general in Missouri, Eric Schmidt, who basically, you know, he's, he has a conflict of interest because he's also vying for Roy Blunt's uh, U.S. Senate seat because Blunt's going to be retiring. Um, and Schmidt is, he has filed a, uh, a, a frivolous lawsuit challenging the renewed mask mandates in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Kansas City. Keep in mind, Missouri... Uh, basically has the Delta variant. It's surging out of control. Um, I think we are, I think there's only one other state that has more Delta variant cases than Missouri. Okay? So let's get started. So the federal eviction moratorium expired last night at midnight, and it was allowed to expire by both Republicans and, yes, corporate, blue dog, centrist, Democrats, whatever you want to call them, um, with Speaker Pelosi and Congressional leaders Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn just looking on. And apparently it was just too inconvenient for House leaders to remain in session, not just House leaders. It was too inconvenient for centrist Dems to remain in session a little longer until the moratorium was extended. That's how cold-blooded they are. So in response to this emergency situation, Freshman Representative Cory Bush led a protest to demand, as I said before, the House reconvene that night. 
she slept outside overnight. In fact, she's been doing that since Thursday evening. Uh, she's basically received no sleep because she has a little folding chair and uh, a sleeping bag, and she uses a sleeping bag as a little blanket, but more people have joined her, okay? Um, put bluntly, um, excuse me, Cori Bush is essentially shaming or attempting to shame people who are just shameless, namely the GOP and namely corporate Democrats, but, you know, God bless her for trying. And as I said before, she was joined by squad members Elon Omar and Ayanna Presley, and together they slept rough, which means they slept outside on the Capitol steps, just as the unhoused or the homeless are forced to do year-long, whether it's in 100-degree heat, killer heat, or zero-degree cold. And make no mistake, this is a dire emergency because the estimates of how many people will become suddenly homeless uh, through eviction, the estimates range between 7 to 15 million Americans just in this, this coming month. And you can pretty much bet they will be evicted once the moratorium is lifted and, and basically it's already expired. So I expect that these evictions will happen very quickly this week. Um, these evicted Americans and their children will be exposed to the Delta variant of COVID because they will be unable to shelter in place. And we have so many other Americans, specifically on the GOP side of things, that refuse to mask, refuse to vaccinate. And so we have this perfect storm for this thing getting even further out of control. Keep in mind, even if children under the age of 12, even if they, if their parents wanted to vaccinate them, it's not available for them yet. So the people that these GOP of Trump, these GOPers are potentially harming aren't just adults. They're potentially harming and possibly indirectly killing other people's children. It's not hyperbole. It's real people. What happens? Well, uh, there are monies available from COVID relief, which would cover the needed moratorium extension. But we hear Democratic, you know, centrist leaders offering unused COVID relief monies to help fund infrastructure, especially that bipartisan garbage deal. And they would, and they would use these unused, in quotes, air, you can see the air quotes, unused COVID relief monies to fund this infrastructure for this bipartisan group as an appeasement. The very GOP who will do anything to make sure the billionaire class never pays their fair share in taxes. So the next question is, why are these COVID relief monies unused? Why is the Democratic Party leadership trying to placate extremist Republicans who have clearly demonstrated their utter contempt for rule of law? Why try to placate Republicans who have a consistent pattern of lying? And then when they're done lying, they lie some more. Why isn't the president, the Senate Senate Majority Leader, and the House Speaker using their political power to politically whip or punish conservative Democrats who are the roadblock to extending the moratorium and other bills, like, you know, ending the procedural filibuster, which would essentially, UN filibuster, we would restore Democratic majority rule and we could get all this done. But the answer is predictable. Big money interests not only control the system, both parties, but those same big money interests own these politicians with the one, I would say the one exception being the, the real progressives, 
of the ever-growing squad. In addition to the few progressives that are in the Senate, such as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, and um, Raphael Warnock, a few others. But here we have a freshman congresswoman, Cori Bush, brand new. I mean, her first week in office, it was the, the insurrection. But Cori's strong, okay? And like I say, I, I, I say this loud and proud, she's Ferguson strong. And again, as a white ally, albeit I'm part Hispanic, but that's not the point, I personally witnessed it, okay? And she's leading the demand for accountability, justice, and compassion. Corey is Ferguson Strong. So let's look at the protest first. The timeline which progressives uh, followed is a demanded action on this and the manner in which Congress allowed the clock to run out. We're also going to look at corporate landlords, their actions, and how COVID federal monies may have been criminally accepted as these landlords pursued eviction anyway. So from Common Dreams, um, this is an article written by Jake Johnson. It was written July 31st, a few days ago. Bush, Presley, and Omar sleep outside Capitol to demand extension of eviction moratorium. And, she, you know, Cori Bush slammed her Democratic colleagues who, quote, chose to go on vacation early today rather than staying to vote to keep people in their homes, end quote. She's right. She went on to say, quote, I cannot go, I cannot in good conscience leave Washington tonight while a Democratic-controlled government allows millions of people to go unhoused, end quote. Now, there were a few excuses. It basically, um, uh, Common Dreams recorded Democratic leaders in the House did try to pull their caucus together at the last minute and, you know, to extend the moratorium, but, um, and the only reason they did that is because within the last 24 hours, like at the 11th hour, the Biden administration uh, refused to act on its own. Okay, now their excuse, according to Jen Psaki and some others, was that there was a recent Supreme Court case and a decision saying that um, the executive branch couldn't legislate this. It had to come from Congress. But you know, I, I would like to add that, well, that may be true, but the time it would take for these cases to get to the Supreme Court again would buy us a lot of time where people would still be in their homes or in their apartments. You know, the, the Biden administration could have shown some courage and just done it anyway. I know I would have. Let them sue. You'll deal with it when you deal with it. And when there are babies' lives at stake, because, again, children on the, under the age of 12 can't be vaccinated yet. Yeah, if I, were, if I were President Biden, I would have issued the order. It's like, let them sue. We'll deal with it when we deal with it. And I would have framed it that way. And I would have, I would have shown the GOP and, and corporate Democrats for the cruel SOBs that they are. So let's get back to this article anyway. Sorry about that, folks. Um, there were a number of centrist Democrats and were clear that they wanted to leave for August recess. Um, Politico reported the following, quote, earlier Friday afternoon, top Democrats began floating an alternative that they hoped would pick up votes from the moderate wing of their caucus. 
an extension of just over three months rather than six months on what is likely to be the House's final task before departing for its lengthy August resource, but moderates remained unconvinced. So House Democratic leaders tried this last-minute Hail Mary pass where they attempted to pass a moratorium extension using a procedure known as unanimous consent. They do it all the time, unanimous consent. I remember writing about this before where basically um, if they want to get something done last minute and nobody's really listening or paying attention, they do unanimous consent. A lot of stuff gets passed that way, truth be told. But it just takes one person to stop it. And there was a single GOP congressman who halted uh, basically the moratorium extension through unanimous consent. Um, This was from Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, and that blocked it. So now you know another person to blame. There wasn't any full vote in the chamber, so centrist Democrats didn't have to go on the record opposing an extension. That's another thing. They should always have to go on the record. And keep in mind, the House isn't scheduled to return until September 20th. They're gone for practically two months. And, of course, Corey expressed her outrage, again, that her colleagues, quote, chose to go on vacation early today rather than staying to vote to keep people in their homes, that the House suddenly adjourned this evening without a roll call vote, on Chairwoman Waters' legislation is a moral failure, end quote. Now, that was in a letter to how, that Bush, Cori Bush wrote to House Democrats on Friday, and she was referring um, to a bill that Representative Maxine Waters uh, uh, craft, craft, excuse me, crafted to extend the eviction moratorium. Cori went on to explain, quote, I have been unhoused and evicted. I've slept in my car and slept outdoors. I know what it's like, and I wouldn't wish that trauma on anyone. I'm prepared to do whatever it takes, including staying in Washington and demanding the House vote on H.R. 4791. I cannot in good conscience leave Washington tonight while a Democratic-controlled government allows millions of people to go on house since the Delta variant is ravaging our communities. Millions of people are about to lose their homes, and as Democrats, we must not give up on the chance to save their lives, end quote. There were only two other lawmakers that joined her, and that was Elon Omar and Ayanna Presley. So the eviction moratorium was first implemented by the the CDC, and it was done so um, as a public health issue, all right? It wasn't basically just trying to get people to wiggle out of the responsibilities as GOPers would claim. It's not that at all. COVID is so extremely contagious that they were trying to help people stay in their homes so they could shelter in place while we got this, tried to get it under control. And according to The Guardian, as of July 29th, more than 10 million tenants in the U.S. are behind on rent. Um, And apparently, according to The Guardian, the relief funds that were appropriated by Congress to help these at-risk households basically unspent. Like, where'd the money go? So the Washington Post also reported, quote, six months after the aid program was approved by President Donald Trump in December, just 12% of the first $25 billion in funds have reached people in need due to loss of income from the pandemic. 
more than three months after President Biden signed a March relief package with another $21.5 billion for the program. Even less of that has been spent, end quote. You know, if these people received the money they were supposed to receive, I, I'm sure they would have paid the rent. So where did the money go? And why is there all of a sudden at the same time on a parallel track all this unspent COVID relief money that they can shovel into this bipartisan infrastructure deal deserves some serious investigation. Housing advocates are warning that with all these possible evictions, um, you know, it's going to be particularly perilous right now because of the Delta variant. Um, And, you know, then Here's the other thing. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition, as well as some other groups, sent a letter to congressional leaders Thursday, this past Thursday, and here's a quote from it. Quote, without immediate action, millions of these households will be at risk of losing their homes and their ability to keep themselves and their families safe and healthy. The newly newly surging Delta variant, low vaccination rates in communities with high eviction filings and the slow rate of distributing emergency rental assistance make the necessity of an extension abundantly clear, end quote. And this was in a letter that they sent to congressional leaders this past Thursday. So my question is, why did the president wait until three days before the moratorium expiration to request cooperation from Congress? Why was President Biden so silent on this desperate need? Where was was the vice president? Why is this administration so keen on placating the GOP instead of, instead of protecting everyone else who is not rich? You know, and I would have been just as hard on Donald Trump. When you do the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. I have to do this with Biden as well. Now, this letter was sent to um, the Biden White House as well as congressional leaders. And, um, you know, once again, you had a statement the same day from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who claimed uh, the president can't unilaterally prolong the moratorium because of this Supreme Court ruling. Uh, and that was as documented by NPR. And then why not issue a presidential extension is, is my question. Let the GOP lawyers go to court. The time it would take to get to the Supreme Court would be substantial, months most likely, and would save lives. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Apparently, Kristen Capps, a staff writer for City Lab, said the same thing. Quote, the CDC could extend the eviction moratorium right now. It would almost certainly be struck down, but it would take time for a challenge to reach the Supreme Court. Instead, the White House punted to Congress, but with very little time to reach a deal. Okay. So... And Corey was quoted, Corey Bush was saying, quote, we slept at the Capitol last night. Actually, she's still there. Uh, to ask them to come back and do their jobs. Today's their last chance. We're still here. Now, I've got some more information from The Hill. That article is from Common Dreams. This is an article from The Hill, which is mainstream media, uh, by written by Christina Marco, Scott Wong, and Mike Lillis. Um, yeah, that's right. And it was written, published Friday, it looks like. How, uh, the headline is House Adjourns for Recess Without Passing Bill to Extend Federal Eviction Ban. Um, and this quoted quite a few people. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer um, 
was the one who tried to pass a bill by, as I said before, by unanimous consent, and that would have renewed the moratorium through October 18th. Republicans objected again. I, they, I, I named the one person, the one Republican, that filed the objection. Um, but it wasn't just Republicans. The fact is that they could have passed it if all the Democrats, including the centrist blue dog Democrats, had gone along with it. They had the votes, but they weren't going to get the cooperation. Um, Speaker Pelosi, they're, they're trying to blame the Biden, President Biden for this now. Pelosi said, quote, we only learned of this yesterday, not enough time to socialize it within our caucus, as well as to build the consensus, especially in the time of COVID, end quote. Okay, except that's not really true. Progressives from the squad, the expanded squad, you know, Jamal Bowman, Corey Olivan, they had been issuing written requests for this extension for weeks before this last-minute notice that Pelosi claimed. I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, so Steny Hoyer's excuse was, quote, we have advised members that they may very well be back here in a fashion which would keep this issue still very much alive and very much in our focus and ready to act, okay? But that's later. So it'll be too late for millions of Americans as they watch their few possessions tossed out on the street and forcibly evicted with violence if necessary by local police. It would be lovely if the police would refuse to obey those orders, but they don't care. So moderate Democrats, those centrists, those blue dogs, they left. They were angry that the leadership um, kept their caucus in town until late in the day. They didn't want to finish their work day as scheduled. And these are the blue dogs, the Democratic centrists, the, you know, the corporate Democrats. And, you know, again, Steny Hoyer said that, you know, this 11th hour attempt because the Biden administration dropped the ball. He called it unfortunate. House Majority Whip James Clyburn called it inconvenient, end quote. And AOC was quoted by the Hill, and here's the quote they gave. The fact that this statement came out yesterday about, you know, the, basically, let me back up here. So the Dems in the House are blaming um the Biden administration for waiting to the last minute to tell them we can't do anything and handing the ball back to them because that's what the court said they had to do. The court said Congress can change this, not the president. Um, and so they quoted AOC, quote, the fact that the statement came out just yesterday is unacceptable. I want to make that very clear because the excuses that we've been hearing about it, I do not accept them, end quote. Now, that's the way the Hill reporters quoted AOC, but that wasn't the full quote. The meat of the quote was omitted in practically all the mainstream media. So I went back to the actual YouTube video, and I transcribed it, and here it is. And it demonstrates that the House leaders did know better. They had been informed weeks in advance. Here's the quote from AOC's tweet and the YouTube video with her standing right next to Cori Bush. Quote, the thing on top of all this is everybody knew this was coming. We were sounding the alarm about this issue. The court order was not yesterday. The court order is not Monday. The court order was about a month ago, speaking about the Supreme Court order. We had financial services hearings about it. Members have written an alarm to the administration. 
There have been public statements about it asking for all of us, White House and Congress, to move on this sooner. The fact, now here's the part they did quote, the fact that the statement came out just yesterday is unacceptable and that, that all that stuff. Now notice, notice how the Hill reporters omitted that meat. Okay? They just say she didn't accept it and making it sound like she's some sort of, I don't know, overaged adolescent, but that's not what it was. The court ordered the Biden administration, Jen Psaki is blaming for their inaction, was a month ago. The Biden administration knew about this a month ago. That's one. This is according to AOC, the full quote that should have been quoted and wasn't. They have financial services hearings with Maxine Waters. They have, been, they have hearings about this, the progressives. Progressives, the squad wrote, wrote multiple memos to the Biden administration. They made public statements. So it is not just disingenuous that Jen Psaki said, well, there's not much we can do about it. The court order, the Supreme Court order she's talking about wasn't a day ago. It wasn't this week. It was over a month ago. So Jen Psaki not only issued a statement for the Biden administration was disingenuous, it was just not right lie. And mainstream media covered for it by omitting the important part of AOC's quote. Well, we gave you the whole thing here at TNN. Now, Representative Maxine Waters is the, the head of the House Financial Services Committee. She's also the author of the eviction moratorium bill. And she really did. She broke with Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn. She refused to endorse their strategy of rushing the bill to the floor using unanimous consent because she knew it wasn't going to work. More specifically, though, she wanted the bill to go through the regular order, the regular sequence of things, and receive a recorded vote. To quote Maxine Waters, I did not quote, I did not sign on to the statement or join any of them because I just thought that we should have fought harder. I agree that we didn't have the votes, but what I did not agree to was that we didn't, was that we didn't take it up. She wanted them to go on record so that their voters would know. And I agree with her. It's so bad. This article on, in the Hill quoted the, the researchers at the Aspen Institute. Now, the Aspen Institute is conservative, very conservative. And they estimated the evictions were higher than what even Cory Bush thought they would be. They're, they're closer to probably 15 million people that could be at risk of eviction um, as of today, Sunday, August 1st. Okay? So that's what really happened. Um, so the House Democratic leaders, you know, last minute tried to make it look like they actually were trying to do something, but they didn't. And the reason why a moratorium eviction extension would have failed because the GOP congressmen aren't going to vote for it. That means every blue dog dem, every corporate dem, every centrist, third way, whatever you want to call it, they had to be on board with this, and they weren't. Okay? That's what happened. So before the House adjourned, 
Biden, President Biden issued a statement Friday, and he was imploring state and local governments to, quote, take all possible steps to immediately disperse, end quote, those emergency uh, rental funds. Um, He went on to say, quote, every state and local government must get these funds out to ensure we prevent every eviction we can, end quote. Uh, That sounds nice. Where was he months ago? The fact is, what accountability measures are in place to make sure that those monies go to those in need and not to GOP pet projects, especially in states with a GOP governor and a GOP-controlled legislature? The bottom line is you can't trust too much that happens at the state level, especially if it's GOP-controlled. Not going to happen. Pelosi and her team... uh, in the beginning, tried to push for an extension that would last to December 31st. The town fell short, and it wasn't just from Republicans, from resistance from moderates, Democratic moderates, as well as housing industry votes, uh, housing industry groups. So then Pelosi tried to extend the ban, um, the eviction ban, to October 18th to, you know, appease the centrist, um, and. It didn't work, okay? And lawmakers were saying they were kind of frustrated because there's some $46.5 billion with a B in rental aid that's been, um, you know, allocated by Congress for all these different pandemic relief measures, but most of it is really unspent. Again, why is this money unspent? Who's dispersing it? Apparently only $3 billion of the 46.5 billion has been actually distributed to renters by state and local governments. Um, Congressman Clyburn, who is the House Whip, said um, that that issue was the the greatest barrier to getting a deal on Friday. To quote uh, Congressman Clyburn, quote, a lot of the members were very concerned this money's all bottled up, and they want to know what can we do to get the money out of these offices and into the landlord's and tenant's pocket. You can extend it, and it's still bottled up. That gave our members more angst than anything else, end quote. Okay. If that were the case, if that was the truth and not an excuse, I mean, I want to know where the money went also, but why weren't there proper accountability measures and transparency measures built into the the bill to start with? Seriously. You know, why would the feds trust a lot of state-level and local-level governments controlled by GOPers that, have such a lousy record, seriously. So then you've got um, National Association of Realtors that are really upset about this. They quoted saying nearly half of all rental housing in America is a mom and pop operation, and these providers cannot continue to live in the state of financial hardship, end quote. That was according to Shannon McGann, Chief Advocacy Officer for that group. Um, and once again, I see what she's saying, but I guess the question in my mind is, where'd the money go? Why has it been unspent? You know, that money should have been rushed to people in monthly checks every month so they could pay their, their mortgage or their rent. As far as I'm concerned, anybody who doesn't make, anybody who makes less than six figures should have received this assistance. That's it. But it's also um, the concern about the Delta variant because it's this hyper-contagious chickenpox, they said. 
Um, Jen Psaki did issue a statement, quote, given the recent spread of the Delta variant, including among those Americans most, both most likely to face evictions and lacking vaccinations, President Biden would have strongly supported a decision by the CDC to further extend this eviction moratorium to protect renters at this moment of heightened vulnerability. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has made clear that this option is no longer available, end quote. They accepted the Supreme Court did that over a month ago. So, and Jen Psaki knows that. So not only was that a lie of omission, but it was an incredibly stupid lie. And once again, the president could have used the, the very power, the, the, emer- the emergency powers that presidents have enjoyed, especially since 9-11, to do something that was actually helpful and just declare this a, a national security issue and just cut those checks monthly, but also with security measures to make sure that those landlords process those checks and give credit for them. Because as you see, that was part of the problem too. So that's what we have here. Now, as of, well, really today, Cori Bush is still out there. More people have joined her. We're wondering what it's going to take to get to get the Democrats in power to actually fight. They are too intent on fighting progressives instead of fighting the GOP. The GOP of Trump that caused this disaster in the first place because of their pattern of constant negligence from the beginning COVID started. So let's look at some of the other information here. There was a report from Reuters, which is definitely mainstream media, and it was dated April 23, 2021, and it deals with giant corporate U.S. landlords, not mom-and-pop operations, um, and other conflicts of interest. So this was a report written by Michelle Conlin for Reuters. the um, headline is Special Report, Giant U.S. Landlords Pursue Evictions Despite CDC Ban. As it turns out, these corporate landlords weren't following the rules anyway. So they describe the, um, they describe the, the experiences of several, several people that are working poor, whose hours have been cut or lost their jobs because of the pandemic, that are suddenly unable to pay their rent. They start out in Orlando, Florida, Marvia Robinson. She drove a Greyhound bus, 63 years old. Um, Anyway, they describe how she gets off her her shift. Um, She walks to her used Toyota Corolla, and then um, she wanted to go home, but she didn't have a home to go to. Because apparently 19 days earlier, this corporate landlord by the name of Invitation Homes um, and basically had evicted her. Invitation Homes is the single largest landlord for single-family homes in the entire United States. Okay, So when COVID hit last year, of course, the travel economy was hit hard. And Marvia Robinson's hours were cut and her pay was reduced 
to at one point one two week period she uh, earned as little as sixty five dollars, and so of course she fell behind on her rent. By January, she owed almost five thousand dollars. So she emailed Invitation Homes to ask if they if they would accept funds from a county program that gives landlords four thousand dollars in back rent, which would which is most of it. There was an email response that was reviewed by Reuters. Invitation Homes uh, told Marvia Robinson that their company was not participating in that program, quote, due to the landlord restrictions, end quote. But they didn't explain what they meant by that. Then the company sent Marvia an email with links to information about maybe other government and nonprofit relief programs. Get this. They also sent her information uh, urging her to um, contact, contact payday lenders, food banks, the Coalition for the Homeless, and then also alternative ways for her to make some money, like by selling her hair, her plasma, or donor eggs. And then Invitation Homes sent a note that they were demanding the rent and extra fees, but they signed off with this, with this quote, quote, we're in this together, your Invitation Homes team, end quote. My God, could they get any more vile? Seriously, unbelievable. <clears throat> so let me go on here. Then quickly after that, January 13th, Invitation Homes filed a lawsuit so they could evict Marvia Robinson. Two days later, Marvia Robinson um, filed basically a handwritten declaration with uh, this, the Orange County Civil Court. And in that declaration, she explained that she did qualify for relief under the CDC's um, national moratorium on evictions. And, you know, this is, that's the program meant to help people like Marvia, Marvia Robinson. The next month in February, an Orange County judge approved Robinson's eviction. I don't have the name of that judge, but I can guarantee you eventually I will get that name and I will let you know. So then on March 9th, pretty quickly really, um, excuse me, these two sheriff's deputies showed up at Marvia's home. They bolted the doors and they changed the locks. Now, this article from Reuters, um, when they were contacted, Invitation Homes refused to comment on Marvia's case. Uh, a spokeswoman told Reuters that the company, quote, preserves our legal rights and uh, once they've basically, quote, exhausted all other options, end quote, to challenge tenant CDC declarations. So here this woman clearly qualified. It didn't matter. And I would have other questions too, like, why did the judge approve her eviction when she did qualify? Okay? And for Invitation Homes to say they're not going to participate in this program, I would have said, no, they don't have a right to turn it down. Money's money. They would have gotten most of it. But I think they had other alternative motives. I think they wanted somebody who could pay more, my opinion. So there's more. Um, you know, we're this pandemic, we're moving into our second year, and there's a lot of other cases like that. 
And the Reuters report basically demonstrated that landlords, these corporate landlords in particular, have pushed evictions across the United States despite, quote, despite government measures meant to keep tenants in their homes, end quote. Now, there aren't any comprehensive nationwide figures available right now, but the, the Reuters quoted the Princeton University Eviction Lab, and they found that 318,091 households have faced eviction during the pandemic, and that was in the 27 cities that that particular project keeps track of. And that included Phoenix, Milwaukee, and Dallas. But there's more, okay? Um, by May, there was an estimate that 7 million renters across the country will owe some $40 billion in back rent, utilities and fees, according to estimates from Moody's Analytics. Okay, so it's increased. Before the pandemic, there were some 900,000 households evicted. Now it's in the millions. Most of the renters live in apartments or houses that are owned, they said, by small-scale mom-and-pop landlords. And, but then what happened was there was a review of hundreds of court filings across the United States and interviews with tenants, with their lawyers and housing advocates. And what they found, according to the Reuters report, is, quote, it's the big, deep-pocketed corporate landlords with property portfolios spanning multiple states that have been the most aggressive in filing eviction cases, even as they have thrived in the pandemic, end quote. That's pretty damning right there. It makes you really think and realize uh, that the greed in this Corporate green in this country is out of control. So let's move on. Um, since the beginning of the pandemic, according to this report, lar this was in April, large corporate landlords filed nearly 70,000 eviction cases in just 27 counties in seven states. And that was analyzed by the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, which is a Chicago-based non-for-profit and they study the impact that private equity investments have on the public. And this is just the beginning. I would add that I think we need to really re-examine what these private equity firms are doing because they're like vultures, and it's clear they need to be regulated. It just does. Uh, so this group, the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, um, their executive director is Jim Baker. And he was quoted, excuse me, folks, I get a drink here. Sorry for the long pauses. So Jim Baker, the executive director of this private equity stakeholder project, non-for-profit, was quoted as saying that the data they have, quote, just scratches the surface. Giant corporate landlords are driving the eviction crisis, advancing evictions even after residents have sought relief under the CDC eviction moratorium, end quote. Okay. Now, a lot of the big landlords, they focus on single-family homes. Okay. And they're really, what they're doing is they're seeing families that have higher incomes that are running to the suburbs, trying to escape uh, the city because they think it's safer and they're looking for 
you know, larger spaces. Ah, excuse me, folks. They're looking for larger spaces, you know, with big basements so they can do homeschooling the whole nine yards. And Invitation Homes is one of those groups that sees this potential for exponential profit. Now, I'm not making an accusation, but could it be, it's a question, could it be that these corporate landlords are refusing to participate in these mandated programs, which would pay them quite a bit of what is owed, <clears throat> so they can, one, evict lower-income people to make these homes that are in bad condition to start with, um, make them available for higher-income people so they can get a higher rent, and at the same time, they can sue and attach what little little salary these lower-income workers get. It's a question that needs to be asked. Now, there's some other groups as well. Um, so there's another group called Ventron Management. They have cases against tenants in Georgia and Florida. Um, they received $2.6 million under the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. You've got a private equity firm, it should be like premium, but it says Pretium Partners, and they operate what's called Progress Residential and Front Yard Residential. They have a bunch of eviction suits as well as Wells Western Wealth Capital. Um, now, these groups are claiming that the evictions are a last resort, but that's not true. Um, so let's go on here. It is true that the aid from the CDC program is, the aid's been really slow to come out. And, you know, again, that rent relief, I don't know why it's not getting to people unless it's being criminally misdirected by politicians at the state level. And I would think that that's an area that needs to be investigated. So, it did say in this article that a lot of jurisdictions, when a case is settled or dismissed, when, you know, somebody's been evicted like Marvia Robinson, that remains on their record. It's, it's not expunged, which makes it even harder to find housing in the future. Now, according to this, this article, the CDC did not respond to request, you know, for any sort of comment. So, you know, Late last month, two days before the moratorium was originally going to expire, it was extended to June 30th. Um, and one of the things you have to know is that companies that violate the moratorium are subject to criminal penalties. And those penalties are up to $200,000 per incident and up to $500,000 if the violation results in a death. Keep in mind, a lot of these evictions are going to result in deaths because of the Delta variant, because of unvaccinated people and unmasked people. And a lot of these deaths are going to be other people's babies. I can't express that strongly enough. In late March, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Trade Commission announced together that they would be, quote, investigating eviction practices, particularly by major multi-state landlords, eviction management services, and private equity firms, end quote. That's at the right there, especially the private equity part. Because when push comes to shove, I'd be willing to bet that all of this, including the hesitancy of blue dog centrist Democrats to extend the moratorium, is coming down to 
want to bet it's coming down to donations from private equity sources. Want to bet. So the agencies, that means the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Trade Commission basically went on to say that the probe was a response to media reports and complaints from housing advocates and as well as state and federal agencies. And um, they also said that, quote, major multi-state landlords are forcing people out of their homes despite the government prohibitions or before tenants are aware of their rights. Many of the tenants at risk of eviction are older Americans and people of color who have already experienced heightened risk from COVID-19. And then, you know, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission's acting chairwoman, told Reuters that they don't have any comprehensive data that measures this, pro this problem, but, quote, bad conduct by large multi-state landlords and private equity firms has an enormous impact on renters across the country, end quote. Well, duh, what happened to Marvia, in case you're wondering, two weeks after she was kicked out of her Orlando home? Invitations uh, home sent her a bill for $12,768.82. And that included $8,854.30 in owed rent, late fees, legal costs, and other charges that would cover expenses that usually landlords are supposed to take care of in terms of per, you know, preparing a rental for new, new tenants, including landscaping and all that. So invitation stuck her with the bill, even though these were things that they were supposed to do. The letter there was a letter that accompanied the bill and it said, quote, if payment is full, I'm sorry, quote, if payment in full is not made within 30 days, your account will be referred to a collection agency and your credit may be negatively impacted. Thank you for your attention to this matter. End quote. And the letter ended, this is so tacky, quote, we wish you well in your future endeavors. Sincerely, your invitation homes team, end quote. Unbelievable. So Marvia Robinson lives out of her car now. Sometimes she stays with friends. If she has some cash, she gets to stay in like a little motel. Uh, but keep in mind, in early April, she was in an extended stay hotel. It cost her $105 for the night. Low-income people can't afford that. All right, so then it adds, well, she had more problems. Uh, she had to pay to fix a flat tire. And then she had, by mistake, moved an oxygen tank into storage. And it's an oxygen tank that she needs for her asthma. And she has been unable to, uh, to get a COVID-19 vaccine yet. Okay. To quote Marvia, quote, it is very embarrassing and painful having to put all my china, furniture, and artwork in three storage units, and all this happened because the judges are honoring their request for eviction and ignoring the federal ban, ignoring it. And we do have the name of the judge for Marvia, Marvia Robinson. Huh? Um, Orange County Civil Court Judge Brian F. Duckworth. He's the one that signed off on Marvia Robinson's eviction. He refused to respond to requests for comment from Reuters. There was a court support manager by the name of Julio Semino who did respond and say, quote, unfortunately, judges cannot comment 
on specific cases or rulings, end quote. According to Reuters, Judge Duckworth failed to provide any rationale for the decision to allow the eviction of Marvia Robinson, even though she met the criterion to qualify for protection under the CDC moratorium, at least on paper. Apparently, Judge Duckworth didn't even bother to investigate to make sure that that was true. Her income had been negatively impacted by COVID. These are the criteria. She made less than $99,000 a year, a lot less. She applied for rent relief. Okay. But apparently, Judge, that was not enough for Judge Duckworth, and he didn't bother to even consider it. Must be nice to be a... Um, dictator in the court. So then, uh, excuse me, folks, my throat's bothering me. There was an email statement that Reuters acquired from Invitation Home spokeswoman Christy Desjardins. And this is the quote she sent. Quote, we reserve the right to challenge CDC declarations in cases where a resident has not paid rent over multiple months, nor have they made any arrangements to pay rent, and where we have repeatedly offered such arrangements, including mutual termination of lease with no financial obligation on the resident's part, end quote. Except that Marvia Robinson said Invitation Homes never made that offer. And again, we don't have, it. where's the proof? And what Reuters found is that landlords can win evictions because the CDC moratorium, unfortunately, is open to interpretation by judges. So that these landlords, these corporate landlords that are really run by private equity firms, they can argue that a tenant violated the terms of the lease, or maybe they engaged in criminal activity or didn't follow or abide by a stipulated payment plan. But keep in mind, they can argue that but there's no mention that they, have to, that they have to actually provide proof of those allegations. And that's why these evictions keep coming. Florida is really a hot spot for pandemic evictions. Okay? Apparently, Florida has some of the, hard, according to Reuters, has some of the harshest eviction laws in the entire United States. Tenants are given just five days to pay up in total or move out. And that the eviction filings remain on a person's record forever doesn't matter, even if the case is found in their favor and they're not guilty, they're still going to have this black mark on their, on their uh, records. And let's face it, this is where everything's come full circle. We have corporate America moving into the U.S. rental market, and that really began right after the 2008 financial crisis. And it basically, you know, we had a, it, prior to 2008, we had a superheated housing market, there were shaky mortgages packed into securities that were sold to investors. Homeowners started to default in their loans because they just couldn't afford it. And the market for these mortgage-backed securities collapsed. Ten million homeowners lost their properties. And then that was a simple matter for investment banks like Goldman Sachs, who was a major player in the mortgage-backed securities market, to move into the rental market. And that's the thing. Goldman Sachs had actually bet against securitized mortgages, and this was unknown to their investors. And that trade was dubbed, um, quote, the big short. And so they were betting against themselves would make sure that they would profit when the market tanked. 
And the Goldman Sachs executives who engineered this big short that bet against securitized mortgages, which really would give them incentive to to evict as many people as possible as well, um, the people responsible. A, a Goldman Sachs executive, the one that engineered the bet against that housing market, was a man named Dol- Donald Mullen Jr. I'll say it again, Donald Mullen Jr. Donald Mullen Jr. left Goldman in 2012, and then he created Progress Residential. And then he joined a rush by Invitation Homes and other groups uh, basically to buy up these foreclosed homes cheap and in bulk. And then these firms, they kind of estimated that rents in suburbs of good schools would keep rising, and then basically it would push up the value of these uh, foreclosed homes that they bought up cheap, and then they could sell bonds, according to Reuters, backed by rental income to finance even more home purchases. So, you know, when I said big banks are behind it, yes, they are. And it is controversial, but it's been going on. And there was also um, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta in 2016, did an analysis, and they found that this Colony Starwood, which would, like, merge with Invitation Homes, filed eviction notices on over 30% of their tenants, Um, and what they found, and Invitation Homes filed notices on 15%, and what they found is the direct quote, quote, the strongest predictor of whether a tenant got an eviction notice was if the tenant was black, the Atlanta Fed said, end quote. Invitation Homes is just saying, oh, the data is outdated, irrelevant. They said race is, quote, no bearing on any aspect of our business, end quote. But, yeah, they're going to say that. In January 2021, Mullen's Predium partner, so he's this Donald Mullen guy formed into one of these big corporate landlords, Predium Partners, and a private equity firm, Aries Management, And all that got folded into Progress Residential. And this merged entity has a portfolio of 55,000 rental homes. They're third among the private equity stakeholders' projects, list of top firms that are pushing evictions during the CDC's moratorium. And again, through a spokesperson, Mullen didn't respond to requests for comment from Reuters. And there's more. You know, we have the story of Lachelle Reynolds, who's 50 years old, black mother of two, had an impeccable rental history, but then she moved in December of 2019 um, on Song Loop in Riverview, Florida, near Tampa. Um, She did repairs herself. She kept the house spotless, but in 2020, spring of 2020, pandemic's raging, her hours she was a manager for an insurer. Her hours were slashed. She lost over half her income. Um, and by summer, she said, quote, the wheels just totally come off, end quote. Um, she reached out to Progress for help, and the company told her it would waive the first $125 late fee, but only once. Who charges $125 for a late fee? Jesus. She, was then, she then tried to make partial payments of her monthly rent of $1,835. That's what she told Reuters. Get this. She was finally locked out of the company's payment portal. So even though she tried to make payments, they locked her up. She couldn't. 
Then Progress sued her for eviction, and they wanted over $10,000 in unpaid rent, late charges, and fees. She responded by filing again a declaration in court that she qualified for protection under the CDC eviction moratorium. Um, Progress challenged Reynolds' declaration. They argued in court that this is, quote, an unconstitutional attempt to, to create a general police power for the federal government, end quote. She did have the help of a lawyer, and she was able to get the court to agree to a stay of eviction. And then she got the case dismissed in April, but she still owes them $13,000. Progress Residential, they had a spokesperson who blamed the court filing on an outside lawyer that Progress doesn't work with anymore. And they said the company didn't approve of this lawsuit or, or review it. Really? And they went on to say, quote, we do not challenge valid, excuse me, Progress went on to say through a spokesperson, quote, we do not challenge valid declarations related to the eviction moratorium. We have worked with the resident in question to obtain meaningful rental assistance, and they are still in the home, end quote. The spokesperson also added, quote, progress residential complies with all applicable laws and regulations and continually engages the residents on matters affecting them, end quote. Okay. If you believe that, then I guess you'll believe that Donald Trump's really a Rhodes Scholar. There's more to this report. There were bulk buys. Again, these are speculators. They're gambling on bigger profits on the backs of low-income workers. Um, you know, and again, this goes back to Mr. Mullen, uh, Progress Residential's parents, Mullen's Predium Partners. One of the things they agreed in January is a $700 million joint venture with the Canadian Public Sector Pension Investment Board to buy more homes. So, you know, you've heard stories on air about how the, uh, the uh, inventory of affordable homes has been depleted. This is why groups like Mullins Predium Partners have snapped up homes during an economic downturn, bought them cheap after they were foreclosed, and really depleted these affordable homes and jacked the prices up. Keep in mind then, this pandemic, at the time this article was written in April, has thrown 22 million Americans into unemployment. And even according to Biden's administration, approximately one in every five tenants are behind on their rent. So, again, we have another story. Jesse Olau, who is a tenant with Invitation Homes in Brandon, Florida, um, couldn't afford his rent after, you know, he had to close his auto repair shop last November. Up till then, he always paid on time and in full. He called Invitation Homes to offer partial payment, but the company refused. Sound familiar? Then he had a bad a motorcycle accident. He was in the hospital in intensive care for two weeks with two punctured lungs, 20 broken bones, and a brain injury. By the time he was able to return home, um, he was still having blackouts. He couldn't remember his voicemail pin. Invitation home student for eviction. Um, he had a friend helped him fill out the CDC declaration. There was a letter to the court, quote, please accept my apologies. You know, I've been late on my rent. He met the moratorium's uh, income requirements. But Invitation Homes challenged it in court, stating plaintiff has reason to believe that defendant do not meet the qualifications of a covered person. But once again, Invitation Homes failed to provide any evidence of which to base that belief. So their spokesperson's obviously lying. 
They've been hiking up rents. We can go on and on. Let's move on. So, you know, I ragged on not only Republicans, but President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and yes, Jim Clyburn. And in all fairness, Clyburn um, was basically, he's the chair apparently of the House Select Subcommittee on the, on the COVID crisis. And this was um, basically a press release from that committee, from Clyburn. Um, it's a Clyburn to investigate pandemic evictions by corporate landlords. The date of this press release is July 20th, 2021. Note the late date. Why didn't Congress and Clyburn work on this earlier? Why didn't he work with progressives in Congress? Maybe he's just too busy trying to make sure that Nina Turner doesn't get to be another member of the squad. So this started July 20th, just days before this thing's going to expire. He sent letters requesting documents and information from four corporate landlords that had high eviction rates through the COVID pandemic. And again, the evil four corporate landlords are top of the list, Invitation Homes. Mr. Mullins, Predium Partners, Ventron Management and the Siegel Group. And the reports have called into question the fact that these particular groups have failed to comply with the CDC eviction moratorium. They won't cooperate with rental assistance programs. There's records and news reports that show these companies have repeatedly filed to evict uh, tenants who have submitted CDC declarations to get moratorium protection. Tenants have applied for or received Office of Rental Assistance Funds to pay back rent. And here are some quotes from uh, what Clyburn wrote to the companies. Quote, the failure of some large landlord companies to comply with eviction moratoria or to cooperate with rental assistance programs is creating significant hardship for tenants affected by the COVID crisis and could contribute to a needless housing crisis as our nature, nation recovers from the pandemic and its economic fallout. Some landlords have acted responsibly during the pandemic, complying fully with eviction moratoria and working cooperatively with tenants to obtain federal rental assistance funds. But those large landlord companies that have moved to evict people aggressively have had a substantial negative impact on struggling American families, end quote. So on July 20th, he sent this letter. The hearing that Clyburn was going to have was to be held on July 27th, 2021, just a few days before the moratorium is set to expire and Congress will leave for their convenient vacation. Why is this so late? Okay. And the hearing was, go was going to address, one, the effective use of emergency rental assistance funds, I'm reading straight from it, two, highlight best practices and successes of the American Rescue Plan, and three, identify what further actions need to be taken to prevent a housing crisis and keep families in their homes, okay? <clears throat> Public reports and court records show that there are certain corporate landlords that have moved to evict tens of thousands of people during the COVID crisis, people that met the criterion for the CDC moratorium assistance, okay? And the following groups are listed. Again, Invitation Homes, Predium Partners, Mr. Mullen, Ventron Management and the Siegel Group. And the Select Subcommittee is gathering documents and information by August 3rd, 2021. That's nice. 
That's after the moratorium is already gone. Okay? It just is. So what? why bother? And, you know, they're going to look into several things, though. Uh, September 2020, after the CARES Act moratorium expired, the CDC imposed this nationwide moratorium on evictions as a public health measure. Congress has provided over $46 billion in emergency rental assistance to state and local governments, tribal governments, including $21 billion in the American Rescue Plan. But, and they've urged state courts to use rental assistance to resolve these eviction cases without ordering these people to leave their homes. But again, where'd the money go? And, and here's the thing. In my home state of Missouri, I see people on Facebook also claiming they've submitted all the necessary documents to get this assistance, and they still haven't seen any checks, and they're still facing eviction. Where is the enforcement mechanism which will prevent governors and state legislatures and, and judges from stealing these funds or blocking them? Where's the protection against rogue landlords who receive the money and still pursue evictions? And again, why did Congressman Clyburn wait until days before the moratorium was set to expire to investigate the situation or even to really begin investigating. We don't know. So in conclusion with our first story, in all fairness to Congressman Clyburn, this committee is, his committee's needed, but the health is again going to come too late for far too many. It's basically akin to letting the baby drown in the bathwater and then looking for culpability after the baby's funeral. Bluntly put, there is plenty of blame to spread around. So let's, let's list the blame and the responsible parties in order, from the least to blame to the most. Okay? In my opinion, number one, mainstream media. As opposed to actual journalists, just another case of overpaid media personalities spreading sneakier propaganda. In other words, minimizing AOC statements. They imply the progressives, especially the squad, are behaving like overage adolescents, well-meaning but unprepared for the job, and that's a lie, a lie of omission. AOC's entire quote included the fact that the growing ranks of the squad sounded the alarm well in advance of this deadline. They held financial services hearings and wrote to the administration, again, well ahead of this deadline. But mainstream media omitted all of that and reduced AOC's statement to her claiming she would not accept the excuses of the speaker and the Dem leadership, and that misrepresentation is a prime example of propaganda. Number two, predictable Republicans who despise the non-rich. Nothing new here. Their collective greed and cruelty is on display for the entire world to see. It is safe to say that the Republican Party, the GOP of Trump, is not only the GOP of white supremacy, it is the GOP of the American Nazi Party. I said it, and as an actual Jew, I can say that. Another area to blame, corporate landlords. They're true villains. We documented the reasons. We quoted from the Reuters in-depth report. But keep in mind, they couldn't get away with this if they didn't have political enablers in both parties. And number four, the people I blame the most. Not only the GOP, but Democratic leadership, corporate Dems in the House, the Senate, the Vice President, and yes, the President as well. Put bluntly, corporate, blue dog, centrist Democrats abdicated their responsibility and placed their corporate donors above their constituents and their children. 
There's no point in viewing House and Senate Republicans anything but roadblocks to any action benefiting the non-billionaire class. Forget that. So blame is assigned to corporate, blue dog, Dem centrists, including Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi. Now, the president's omitted since, well, the president has slightly less blame because there was a recent Supreme Court uh, ruling, but it was over a month ago, declaring that only the Congress could change this uh, moratorium timeline, not the president. Although he could still just issue it, declare it a national security emergency, and wait to see what the court says after that. But apparently, Joe Biden is too worried about, you know, bipartisanship and his buddies across the aisle. Like, Joe, let me tell you something. It's not the GOP of the 70s. These people are rabid Nazis and enablers. Just fight for us already. Going on, as explained by AOC, the speaker and the entire Democratic leadership knew this deadline was coming and set to, set to expire. House progressives held financial services hearings on this looming deadline, which unless extended, would leave many Americans unhoused and in the middle of another COVID surge with the Delta variant. We're talking, you left them with a possible death sentence. Refusing to reconvene for this emergency, especially if the corporate Democrats allowed the moratorium to conveniently expire, constitutes a collective act of political cowardice and, I'm going to call it, fiscal violence against low-income workers. Besides extending the eviction moratorium, let's be honest, we need direct rental assistance and more of it so that landlords, especially small mom-and-pop landlords, could maintain their property. While the federal government did write some checks, it wasn't sufficient to fix this problem. And then we have the problem where these monies often had onerous regulations attached to them. We have a lot of unspent money, and we don't know why it's unspent, but now that unspent COVID money that should have gone to people like Marvia Robinson is being offered in sacrifice to the bipartisan group for infrastructure so they don't have to tax the rich. Nonsense. The trail of money needs to be traced back. We need to find out where every dollar went, and it should go to people like Marvia Robinson so they don't have a death sentence because they're homeless during Delta, the Delta COVID variant. It's that simple. We need a monthly check to help low-income and middle-income people, period. That coupled with rent control would have worked. But the GOP and the corporate Dems lacked the political courage and integrity to do this. Now, they were fine with these cruel mass evictions as they go on vacay, on vacation. They're enjoying their six-figure salaries, their taxpayer-funded health care, and the perks of political lobbying. Let's call it what it is. The perks of legalized bribery or campaign contribution. Let's face it. Congress is having their Marie Antoinette moment, both parties. And one of the few people that had the political courage and the moral fortitude and the conscience to, to scream it from the rooftops is my Congresswoman, Cori Bush, who I am proud to call my Congresswoman and proud to call friend. That's that segment. So now I'm going to give you a little more 
music to set the mood. Okay, so now we have our second segment, which is shorter, and I call this, it's something I do on the Environmental Justice Report, um, which airs on Thursdays, but again, all our shows are archived, so you can listen to them at your convenience. This I I changed a little bit. I call it our political heroes, zeros, and villains. For this week, we had our, our, for this week, we have our political villain. In this instance, it's Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. So we have this situation in Missouri where the population centers of St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Kansas City, Missouri have all reissued mask mandates in public places. Now, it should be noted that private businesses don't have to comply with this order. This is for in public. It includes public buildings as well as public transportation. In response to a state controlled by a GOP governor, Mike Parsons, and a GOP-controlled legislature, both refusing to implement any mask mandates ever, these municipalities that are population centers opted to protect themselves from what can only be called the reckless endangerment sponsored by the GOP. So our Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, filed yet another frivolous lawsuit attacking St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Kansas City, Missouri, for daring to demand masking in public places. Now, keep in mind here, okay, um, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt is also, he has a conflict of interest. He is running for the GOP nomination for the, the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Roy Blunt. So he has to throw red meat at the Trump crazies. And these are the COVID crazies. So the Missouri Independent is a small newspaper, and there was an article in here by Rudy Keller. It was published July 28th, a few days ago, and the headline is Eric Schmidt Lawsuit Targeting St. Louis Mask Mandates Riddled with Data Errors. Attorney General's Filing Mixes State and Local COVID Case Death Counts in Comparison. This is serious. It may sound kind of boring. But when an attorney who is an officer of the court, especially an attorney general, regardless of political affiliation, when they file court documents, they're supposed to, they can have their own take on the data, but they're still supposed to represent data that is honest, that is complete. And when it's misrepresented or when pertinent data is conveniently omitted, then that is pretty much the equivalent of lying to the court, possible grounds for disbarment. But Eric Schmidt did it. And his goal is really funny, too, because he's questioned the effectiveness of past COVID-19 restrictions because St. Louis City and St. Louis County had masking mandates um, last year when our governor refused to implement that. And to quote the lawsuit that Schmidt filed, quote, despite having the most restrictive and unconstitutional orders in Missouri, St. Louis County and St. Louis City suffered some of the highest COVID-19 case rates and death rates in Missouri, end quote. This article goes on to say the next line is, quote, the problem is that it is wrong. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? 
Apparently, according to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services data, which again is run by a Republican, it showed that St. Louis City and St. Louis County cumulative case rates are actually lower than the statewide rates. Again, this is data that's supplied by a GOP-controlled administration. And that both St. Louis City and St. Louis County are in the bottom half of the 117 local health departments reported by the state. They have death rates going on here. The Independent did an analysis and of Schmidt's filing, which is 37 pages, and they found other places in its filing, quote, where data comparisons are questionable, either because they mix state and local data or omit entire classes of cases, end quote. So then the reporter for the Independent um, contacted A.G. AG Schmidt's spokesman, which is a man named Chris Newell, and um, but Newell didn't provide really any explanation. According to Newell in an email, quote, we filed a thorough detailed lawsuit to seek relief for the people of St. Louis and we'll do so, do so expeditiously. We are confident and proud of our suit, end quote. If I were Mr. Newell, I wouldn't be proud of this lawsuit, but anyway. Now, the St. Louis County Department, uh, Health Department can't comment, according to their spokesman, Christopher Abbs, but uh, they, they don't comment on any aspect of the case. Um, a spokesperson of St. Louis Health Department didn't respond to a telephone message. But going on, here's what happened. Um, they went on to say that when they looked at comparing data with every other county state data, what they found was um, every other county state data was unreliable because local data doesn't necessarily match the state data. Local health officials get their test results sooner, and they might use different criterion to report these cases than what the state's using. So the state report cases are identified by the long swab PCR test and um, the quicker antigen test but the data is reported separately as confirmed and probable cases, and that's a distinction with a difference according to this article. Um, so, for instance, they said here, some local health departments, I'm just quoting directly, like St. Louis only report PCR cases on their dashboards. Others, like Boone County, which is rural, report PCR and antigen cases without separating them. And still others, like St. Louis County, report PCR, antigen, and probable cases of people with COVID-19 symptoms living in the same household as a case identified by testing, end quote. So that's going to mean that St. Louis County's numbers are going to look bigger because they're reporting more, whereas the state and some of these rural counties may, based on the criterion they set, may be actually under-reporting. This goes on and on and on. And they go on to say that the problems with Schmidt's data is that one comparison mixes state and local data but omits the state data for antigen cases entirely. When you omit data from a study and you're comparing all the different areas of a, of a state, that could be questioned, you know, is the Attorney General, is Attorney General Schmidt um, tampering with evidence? with medical evidence. I don't know. 
I'm asking the question. So Schmidt uh, claims that St. Charles County, which, quote, never imposed a government mask mandate, quote, end quote, that they have a lower infection rate overall and a lower death rate than St. Louis County. But this writer went on to say, that might be true only if local data for St. Louis County is compared to state data for St. Charles County and, quote, and no notice is taken of the antigen case rate. So again, the, the Attorney General, it looks like he's manipulating data and withholding data to back up his case. Dangerously close to the evidence tampering, I suspect. So when you use a comparison, only use the state data at all, and then you include the antigen data, then the infection rate in St. Charles is about 12% higher than St. Louis County. So again, you've got one problem with this lawsuit in that basically it appears that the Attorney General is manipulating data, manipulating medical data, and omitting things in his representation to the court when he's supposed to, when he's supposed to look at all of it. And when you omit things on purpose, maybe it's evidence tampering, maybe it's not, but I think it would be time for an ethics investigation of Mr. Schmidt. That's my opinion, okay? Then Schmidt also, that, that's one. And then the next thing that Schmidt's talking about is he wants an order. He, he claims that the mask mandates are, quote, arbitrary and capricious, end quote, and that they violate state law as well as constitutional rights. Now, there is a state law that was passed here, HB 271, and in it, it limits what local health departments can do. Basically, it gives the state the right to act as a nanny state to preempt what local communities do to protect themselves, okay? I would say that's unconstitutional, but that's another battle, all right? But he's going after them, and then we have an issue where the St. Louis County Council, they were upset the county executive, Dr. Sam Page, um, just said, we're gonna reissue this, this mask mandate. And this was, there's a YouTube video that went, I suspect, worldwide. It was so embarrassing. Um, the, uh, the, the doctor uh, with the St. Louis County Public Health uh, is an American citizen, and the gentleman comes from Pakistan, and they call him all sorts of foul names, including a sand N-word. I'm not going to repeat it. Um, and there was this this meeting where it was packed to the rafters and practically nobody was wearing masks. It was crowded and they were, you know, basically behaving like a lynch mob. Okay. It was an embarrassment, but Dr. Sam Page, who's also a county executive, is keeping the mandate in place until, until the court tells him he can't. Okay. So that's what's going on. And so Schmidt, you know, he went on to say, quote, this continued government overreach is unacceptable and unconstitutional, especially in the face of widely available vaccine. There's absolutely no scientific reason to continue to force children to wear a mask in school, end quote. Well, first of all, Missouri is one of the lowest vaccination rates in the United States. That's number one. Secondly, children under the age of 12, even if their parents wanted to get them vaccinated, can't because it, it hasn't been prepared for them yet. So when you fight a mask mandate, when, when, when A.G. Schmidt fights a mask mandate, 
in public schools, especially with younger children, those younger children are getting the Delta variant and they're dying from it. Now, keep in mind, Schmidt's concern for government overreach is only valid when it attacks Democrats or liberals, but he gives the GOP a pass. He had no problem with state overreach when the state passed a law limiting what statutes, preempting what statutes local municipalities could pass and enforce within their own boundaries. Keep in mind also, Eric Schmidt, this is on his, his bio actually, he, he's a family man and one of his children is, um, has a disability and I expect a medical problem as well. How do you feel? if basically people showed up unmasked around his disabled child. Apparently, he doesn't seem to care that children of color might be at risk. Okay. And there's also some other important points, one of which is there was a scientific analysis of mask mandates, which reached a very different conclusion than what, it, what Schmidt said. Okay. July 3rd, 2020, St. Louis City and County, they had mask mandates that they imposed. The surrounding regions of St. Charles, Franklin, Jefferson Counties did not. According to Enbal Shakam of the College of Public Health at St. Louis University, both the counties were all on a what they call a similar trajectory of increasing cases before the mandate. The study found that masks lowered transmission within three weeks, which we know. And he, uh, the St. Louis U University prof said, quote, ultimately we found that St. Louis and St. Louis County consistently had a 40% reduction in cases uh, and it did not increase. And this was, end quote, and that was compared to the neighboring counties, end quote. Um, to make those comparisons Saint, at St. Louis, Shakam and her colleagues, Stephen Scroggins and Matthew Ellis, um, together with the College of Public Health, as well as Alexander Garza, who's the former chief of the St. Louis Pandemic Test Force, used the state health department data. And the data was highly, was reliable, reliably comparable. Shechem went on to say, quote, you can't compare these infection rates if they don't have the same infection reporting, which is the same accusation I made. The attorney general is tampering with evidence, just like these other counties were, where they withheld what they were going to report purposely reducing the reports, whereas St. Louis City and St. Louis County were reporting as much as possible. So that's what we're dealing with here in terms of the COVID crazies. So Eric Schmidt, our Missouri Attorney General, is our political villain, along with the Missouri GOP, Mike Parson, Speaker Pro Tem John Weeman, and many others, all right? And we will be talking later, including a group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who is in it up to their eyeballs. Now we're gonna talk about our political hero, and in this instance, once again, she's our political shero, U.S. Representative Cori Bush, and for obvious reasons. This Sunday evening, she remains outside the Capitol. As of 2 a.m. Sunday, in the wee hours of this early morning, she reported on Facebook, quote, it's 2 a.m. on Sunday. We haven't slept since Thursday night. The eviction moratorium expired, so, not, so we're now in an eviction emergency. 11 million are now at risk of losing their homes at any moment. 
The House needs to reconvene and put an end to this crisis, end quote. And she's right. And the only thing I have left to say to Corey is this. Corey, stay Ferguson strong. We got your back. And that is the Progressive News Report, Progressive News Network for this Sunday evening, August 1st, 2021. I'm Janine Moloff, your host. Next week, we'll be rejoined with Brooke Hines hosting this, and I will, as always, do, do the Justice Report. Good night and God bless. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 